Miss the show? No worries on point and on the podcast today. Justin Trudeau announcing we'll make our own vaccines, which will be great for the next pandemic. It just won't do anything for us now. Can the new Biden administration get the Michaels released? And if they do, what signal does that send when it comes to hostage diplomacy? Only create more problems, probably. And mark February 5th on your calendar. That is the day you strip down and do your job naked. Just don't zoom in. Let's get talking. You can join us, of course, Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio. What's your point? You just don't ever get to point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. We need as much domestic capacity for vaccine production as possible. That's why we've already invested $46 million in the vaccine development facility at the University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization. The good news we've just heard is that Vido Intervac now projects they will be able to produce up to 40 million doses annually. We're investing in Canada's biomanufacturing sector for today and for the long term. Neato, the Prime Minister finally realizes we can make our own vaccines. Too bad it won't start for like a year. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, February 2nd, the day we wake up to Groundhog's Day in early spring. And then we repeat this day over and over every day by the hour for months and months and months. And guess what? We're nowhere close to getting that vaccine. So let us try to unspin some of the spin we got today, because that is exactly what this is. It is a you know a lot of hope wrapped up in a lot of fine print that actually does tell a real story. And the real story is that this is nothing more than smoke and mirrors. And on first blush, you know, it sounds like an answer. Although I don't know what the hell took them so long. But even in a best case scenario, even if Canada makes this vaccine, Because the Trudeau government waited so long, it won't be ready until 2021, the end of 2021. And so according to Trudeau, he came out today and he's signed these two deals for yet-to-be-approved vaccines that will be manufactured at a couple of different facilities. They haven't yet been built. They won't be built anytime soon. So what he announced today does absolutely nothing to solve the immediate crisis of getting vaccines into arms in this country. But the good news is we will be ready for the next pandemic. So what Trudeau is actually trying to do is inoculate himself from further damage of this, you know, this vaccine rollout, which has been an unmitigated disaster. And so I think today's announcement is designed to put some good headlines up on the on the you know, in front of people and convince Canadians that his government's made a, a made in Canada vaccine solution. But it doesn't exist. And this is his fault. This is a self-inflicted wound for Trudeau. You know, he put all his chips on this Chinese-made solution that very predictably fell through. And while he was betting on China, other countries around the world, the UK, the United States, the European Union, all they did was get to work months and months ago, building their own vaccine production capacity. They had a plan B. And we don't. And so here we are now trying to play catch up. And we can't. Because the facility Trudeau is announcing, which is in Quebec, it's been under construction 
for months, months and months and months. The Trudeau government poured about $170 million into this National Research Council. This is a government facility in Quebec. But that was for a deal that they thought they were making with China to produce this CanSino vaccine here. And, of course, that fell apart. But worse, despite all this money to, to build this government, government facility, it's nowhere near completion. Like, what's taken them so long? Like, it's crazy. And so that's why, you know, uh, we're not anywhere close to getting this vaccine. And so you ask, like, wh- why did we wait? Why, why wouldn't they invest or retool in an existing facility, which could be done in, what, two, three months? Because there are other private options for vaccine production that uh, the Trudeau government could and should have invested in months ago. But he didn't want to invest in the, in, in the private options. You know, he wanted to roll the dice on a government option partnering with an enemy. And he lost that bet. And very badly. And there's a company called Nuvax, which is a private facility, and it already exists in Quebec. It's actually right beside this facility that's being built in Quebec and is still barely a foundation. But nonetheless, it says, hey, we could have been upgraded and operational in three months. They said back in December, they told the Globe and Mail back then, that had the Trudeau government invested in their facility, they could and would have been able to domestically produce vaccines here at home and rolling them out by the end of 2020. And they estimate they would have been able to make about 2 million doses each month in the year of 2021. And so the UK, the EU, and the US, they put the money on the line. They invested. They put billions into vaccine production and manufacturing. And so that's why they're now getting a steady supply which will get them vaccinated by summer, possibly even sooner. And with today's news, we too will be vaccinated by the summer. It's just not the summer until summer 2022. And even if we could produce Pfizer or Moderna, the the government didn't negotiate the rights to produce either of them. And again, at what point did anyone in this particular government say, you know, we should have a couple of different plans ready to go, right? Did, did no one in any of the, no one come up with that? Because he's adamant and he keeps saying it. The prime minister said several times today that we're still on track to get every Canadian vaccinated by September. And that, that, that's just not true. Right now we have 800,000 Canadians vaccinated and the numbers don't add up. So we're going to keep waiting We're not getting Pfizer shipments soon, anytime soon. Like they'll start dribbling in maybe. Moderna's now cut shipments in half. And when you look at what the UK is doing, they're doing hundreds of thousands of jabs daily. And you look here, and provinces are literally running dry. And the UK plans to have 15 million citizens vaccinated by mid-February. That is their goal. And so to do that, they're going to be giving 380,000 shots a day. I think we give about four that's how bad it is. We, we give a couple of measly thousand if we're lucky. So we are not even close to reaching the kinds of deliveries that are needed to magically get millions of doses in time for this September fantasy. But the most telling part of the press conference today was when the prime minister, prime minister was asked several times how he can guarantee this stable delivery schedule. And well, it's because they told him so. 
And the assurances that uh, I've received, the assurances that this government has received, uh, is that these transparency measures uh, will not interfere with uh, shipments destined for Canada. Do you have that in writing? International uh, affairs um, and agreements between uh, nations are based an awful lot it. on uh, firm commitments it. made uh, in conversations and shared publicly. Um, it's oh. not like a small claims court where you, you can show a, a document. The conversations I had with the President of the right. European Commission okay. uh, were enough to uh, reassure me and should be enough to reassure all Canadians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not. Because <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but that wasn't just a, like a pregnant pause. Do you have that in writing? Uh, between uh, Kath, uh, yeah, between, no, uh, Jody, uh, that, that was his brain uh, literally shutting down. And so, you know, like apparently a pinky swear is good enough for Mr. Trudeau. It just doesn't pass the smell test, which is why David Aiken then jumped in with this question. Why can't we get Canada on that list of countries that are exempted? Why can't you get something in writing? Why haven't you asked for something in writing? In the spring, uh, we made a decision uh, that mm -hmm. standing up domestic production of PPE was the right thing to do, regardless of uh, whether or not we were confident we were going to continue to be receiving uh, uh, PPE from countries around the world. We knew that mm -hmm. standing up domestic capacity was just the smart thing to do, not just for the short term, but to build the kind of resilience and jobs and opportunity uh, that Canada needed through this pandemic. Similarly on vaccines, even though uh, we have strong assurances from uh, the European Union that the measures, the, the transparency measures they're bringing in will not uh, affect Canada's supply. Right, okay. The guy does not know what the hell he's talking about. The answer to the question, David, is no. The Trudeau government got nothing in writing because we have a government that operates on pinky promises. Pinky promises to get vaccines that we ordered late, that the world's now fighting over, and as General Hillier stated today, that uh, Ontario is simply running dry, and they have no firm date for when this next batch of Pfizer or Moderna will arrive, and when or if people can get second doses on time. So we are in a bit of a drought, there is no question. Yesterday I was out to Guelph and visited the public health unit Guelph and looked at their mass vaccination site, which was empty. I went to Sunnybrook Hospital and their mass vaccination site, and looked at it, which was empty. And they have the capacity of several thousand each per day and the possibility to ramp up past that. So all of us are a little disappointed, a little frustrated, and chomping at the bit to do more and get the vaccines to us. Champing. It's champing, not chomping, but yeah, we're champing all right. But Hillier's had to change his delivery strategy three times, and the provinces are now scrambling to figure out this never-ending, uh, you know, delays to the delivery schedule. They can't figure out how to get people second doses right now. And that's why we're starting to see second doses be stretched out. So it's time that Mr. Trudeau just be honest. Because he knows vaccines aren't coming in September. We know that they're not coming in September. And if he thinks a handshake seals the deal, then we are way more screwed than I actually ever first thought. And we will talk about that. Friday, February 5th marks something I've never heard of before. It marks Naked Work Day. It is a day that was created back in 2010 to celebrate, I guess, on the first Friday of February. And so here we are locked down for months. Maybe some of you are craving a bit of excitement where you can put on your birthday suit, 
and join other nudists who will join in National Working Day Naked Day, something that did not necessarily work out well for Jeffrey Tubin. But if you're comfortable in your skin, they say, hey, join in the fun because you just don't know what you're missing. Stephanie, is it Stephanie Deschain? Is, is owner of Bear Oaks Family. Oh, Stefan, Stefan, I should have known. Stefan Deschain is owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist, Naturist Park. He joins us now. Good to have you. Good to have you. Uh, to have me to be on your show. Thank you. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about not wearing clothes. Are, are you wearing clothes now? No, no, that, I, I, I'm showing respect to you by presenting my true, authentic <laughs> self to you. So I will be disrespectful, and I'm going to keep my clothing on. However, uh, where did this thing come from? How did this thing come to be? Well, the, the way it came to be is there was a, I, I'm not going to name her because she seems to not want to be associated with it anymore, but there was a, a writer who uh, was uh, doing some consulting work, I think, about working from home and doing a lot of writing about that, and she wrote this book called Working Naked, um, and I think it's taken off a lot uh, bigger than she expected and not quite in the area that she would want it to go. So she's kind of given up the association with it, but we've taken it up because I think we think it's a great idea. No kidding. Well, my seven-year-old loves to run around naked, so he'll probably just join in the fun too. But how has the uh, pandemic affected the nudist lifestyle? Because believe it or not, and, and some of our listeners may not realize this, there's actually quite a little uh, naturist um, movement in Ontario. There's actually a lot of people who do, do like to not wear clothing. There are, um, and it depends how you measure them because, you know, being a naturist or a nudist, you don't have to join anything. You don't have to have a card. Uh, you can just do it. So how many there are is, is trickier. But what we know is that we've heard not just from naturists and nudists, a lot of people, because they're working from home, are working with a lot less clothing or often none if they don't have to be on video. Uh, and uh, Mr. Tobin made a mistake, but uh, he was more than just not wearing clothes from what I understand anyway. Right. So what are the, are there rules with this? I mean, so you're going to work, I assume that you work nude a lot, um, but how does it work if you're Zooming? Well, I mean, I work nude uh, all the time because it's my job. Uh, not many people have a job where they don't wear clothes, but that Bear Oaks Family Nature's Park, that's our thing, right? That's where Nature's Park. Um, but even when I'm working in my other work, uh, often if I don't have to be on camera, I don't need to bother putting clothes on. I mean, why do we need clothes, right? It doesn't, uh, other than keeping warm, but physical comfort is rarely the reason that people wear clothes. It's, it's psychological comfort more than anything else. And that's what we're trying to say is as naturists, we're trying to say, let's just, let's own our bodies. Let's get comfortable again with who we are, just like your seven-year-old is and most children are when they're born until they're shamed out of it yeah well i keep telling him like are you going to be a nudist for lily he would love that how oh, he would love that but i i'm trying to to <laughs> keep the clothing on nonetheless uh maybe he's on to something here but but no question things can go wrong do they go wrong well they can certainly go wrong like, with have video. you ever found yourself in a situation yeah uh well so are you on video all the time it's I'm on video a fair bit, but, but it's uh, the issue is knowing your audience. And, you know, I live uh, generally nude and at home and at work. Work, of course, it's a naturist environment. Everybody expects it. But nobody expects me to open the door nude when they're coming to deliver something. So I have to keep that in mind. And it's probably not an issue for most people, but I'm so comfortable that I don't really notice anymore when I'm nude and when I'm clothed. So I have to be a little bit more. Really? 
Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's really, I am, especially in the summer, when, when you open the door right now, you notice that you're not wearing anything mm. because that physical comfort part comes in. Yeah. But when it comes to uh, the summer, um, I have caught myself a few times almost walking out of the house without any clothes on because I'm just not aware of it the same way that most people are. That 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 part of me is gone. That has this panicked, you know. That uh, oh my God, I'm naked in public. There's no such thing as far as I'm concerned. So, but I do keep a set of clothing by the door on a hook, just to you know, emergency clothes, just to quickly put on when the doorbell rings if I'm by the door and I need to answer it. Okay. Any any tips then on how someone could join this uh, this fun on Friday? Well, just do it. Well, that's the thing. Just do it. I mean, most of our work is not being on video for most of us. Even you're not on video. You could be nude right now, except you probably have coworkers watching you. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm in my home. I, I could be. I mean, it, well, it looks. Look, Stephanie, if it works for ratings, I'm happy to do it. I probably won't. But you know, nonetheless, I mean, this is the thing about COVID: is that we're all in our homes, and no one really knows what's going on behind the scenes. Well, exactly. And why wouldn't you be comfortable? Who who is it that decided that you should be? ashamed, embarrassed, and even offended by your, our own image. I mean, it's it's crazy. So, but it's it's natural. It's something that is natural because we've learned it. It's, sorry, it's normal. It's not natural. It is mm. normal because we've been taught that from birth that we should be ashamed and embarrassed by our image. And so whenever we have not wearing clothes, we're generally uncomfortable, mostly psychologically. And the way to do it is in baby steps. You have to start over again and getting used to it and going, okay, you know, do a show naked. Don't tell anybody. How will they know? <laughs> There you go, because my because my son will probably come in and say, "My mommy's naked." Nonetheless, um, how do people get involved? Is there a group uh, of um, of nudists that gather online? Well, there's lots of online uh, nudist naturist groups. You do have to be careful because there's a lot of people who uh, look to nudism and naturism for the wrong reason, right? We we're in mm. there for to desexualize it, and then there's people who are looking for a cheap thrill, and it's kind of sometimes. Online, it's hard to tell the difference. In the real world, when you go to a beach or you go to a naturist club, uh, then you don't have that issue because that's a controlled environment. You can see the people and behavior is much better. So, but you can learn a lot by talking to people. You can learn a lot online. But the biggest thing is to be open to the suggestion and the idea that maybe you don't need to wear clothes when you're not cold. And to then right. try it. Try it. Watch a movie without any clothes on. Sit in the living room. Have dinner without any clothes on. Why do you need clothes when you're having dinner? Um, why do you need to wear clothes when you go? Most people sleep nude. Why is it that you wear clothes from the bath bedroom to the bathroom where you're just going to take them off again, right? There's a lot of the funny things we do. And by asking these questions and trying and taking those steps, you can get there. Or you can just come to Barracks in the summer and jump in full, uh, both feet in and spend a weekend without your clothes on. And people certainly do that as well. There you go. At this point, I think, Stefan, a lot of people would try just about anything because they're going crazy with the COVID. So I thank you so much. Enjoy your Friday, but this uh, is your everyday. So um, happy nakedness. Thank you. Thank you. That is uh, Stefan Deschamps. He is the owner of Bear Oaks Family in Nature's Park, and um, he's naked. Two companies, Precision Nanosystems and Novavax, are now on track to manufacture vaccines right here in Canada. This is a major step forward to get vaccines made in Canada for Canadians. To begin with, we've signed a memorandum of understanding with Novavax to produce their COVID-19 vaccines at the new NRC Royal Mount facility in Montreal. Pending Health Canada approval, 
tens of millions of Novavax COVID-19 doses will be made right here at home. There you go. There's the prime minister earlier this morning making an announcement that uh, I think he thinks we should be excited about, but uh, we really can't get too excited about because it should have happened months ago. And so he says, well, uh, we've signed this deal to make two still unapproved vaccines that will be produced by the government's National Research Council facility that is not built. And so, okay, should be good news. But you got to read the fine print to this thing, because even if we can get this facility up and running, production's not going to start until either very late 2021 or after 2021. And today, Trudeau kept saying September, but then his minister, Francois Champagne, said no, closer to 2021 uh, or after. And last spring, uh, if you're not sure about this, the Trudeau government actually poured hundreds of millions into building this new facility in Quebec instead of upgrading existing facilities. And as my next guest wrote back in December for the Globe and Mail, had the Trudeau government invested money into a private facility called Nuvax in Quebec... That company says it could have started pumping out domestic vaccines before the end of December 2020, and we would have millions of doses steadily filling our supply chains. But here we are, relying on others and listening to an announcement today that, frankly, is wishful thinking made to look like action. Justin Ling is a freelance journalist, also author of the book Missing from the Village. He joins us now. Good to have you, Justin. Hey, good evening. You penned a piece on this particular issue back in December. Um, and and basically laid it all out that we can make vaccines here, but the prime minister and his government did not want to invest in any private uh, companies, which I think we're now learning is a massive fail. I think that's more or less fair. You know, I, I think this this file is difficult, right? Like, there's there's no easy answers here. There's no simple answers. You know, I I don't think I ever made it wanted to make it sound like all we had to do was throw you know a couple million bucks at this facility, and in, in a couple of weeks we'd be up and running, and we'd be pumping out vaccines like nobody but nobody's business. It's it's not that mm-hmm. simple, of course, right? Like this is a really complex file. Other governments around the world have have wrestled with this. This has been a, a difficult problem to solve. But the reality is, other governments solved this. You know, if you're talking to the United Kingdom, they didn't really have a lot of go-to capacity at the start of this pandemic, and made a bunch of very smart strategic decisions, partnering with existing biopharmaceutical and biomanufacturing companies. And they went quick. They put the money where it needed to go. They took a couple of risks, but they covered their spread. And they wound up with a whole bunch of production facilities that have been pumping out millions of doses of the vaccine. And they are going to vaccinate you know, their population well ahead of everybody else. They're also going to do it in part by ordering doses from other European countries. So they did a very smart thing, and they they, they, they acquired uh, sources from a variety of different avenues so that if one fell through, they would be okay. The Canadian government, at the very beginning of this pandemic, put a lot of faith in one project. That was the CanSino yeah. project. Of course, yeah. we know that fell through. But it fell through relatively quickly, and the Canadian government pivoted quickly. And that is good. You hear the prime minister consistently say things like, you know, we realized there was a problem there and we went and acquired X number of doses from, from six different manufacturers and so on and so forth. And that was really smart. That was a really smart move. And because the government of Canada did that, we have a bunch of vaccines coming in. We're going to vaccinate a whole bunch of people by the spring and hopefully everyone in the country by September. That is good. But here's the big but, is that there were, we know, 
companies applying for funding from the government of Canada, who I believe had argued they would be able to start producing vaccines here in Canada, so we'd not be at the behest of the EU or the U.S. or anybody else, producing vaccines here in Canada by the end of 2020. And the government of Canada said, thanks, but no thanks. Never provided a reason, have never articulated publicly why they didn't do this, and frankly have, have put us behind where we could be if they had, I think, if they had gone through these projects. Well, if they had just had a plan B and maybe even a plan C, I mean, they learned about the Cancino deal falling apart in May, and then we hear that they've ordered vaccines in December, but there were valuable months lost where they could have said, okay, here's the deal. Other countries are doing this. Maybe we should also ramp up some of our domestic production and put money into private companies because there are a couple of companies that say, look, Two to three months, we needed more funding, but we could have actually started uh, getting production going. I mean, AstraZeneca, as I understand, was supposed to be made here um, at the facility that the government was building, and then that deal just completely fell apart, too. Yeah, and that's about right. So, you know, after CanSino fell apart, the government of Canada goes off and signs a bunch of these deals around the world. After that, they finally turned the attention to, okay, are there other options on the table? They started taking in applications under what's called the Strategic Innovation Fund. And that was asking for companies who might have good candidates for vaccines, who might have capacity to produce other companies' vaccines, um, and, and, and other kind of projects that, that could produce uh, you know, therapeutics and other things. So when those applications come in, there's this huge lag time. You know, more than a month goes by where the government of Canada is sort of pondering and stroking its chin and considering which projects to go with. Around that time, two things happen. One, a whole bunch of companies get a no get told, no, thank you, we're not interested. Around the same time, the government of Canada announces it's going to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars upgrading a facility in Montreal owned by the government of Canada at the National Research Council. This project is supposed to upgrade that facility so that they could be producing some other companies' vaccines, they tell us, by the end of 2020. Now, that was supposed to be AstraZeneca, but it was never actually agreed to. AstraZeneca told us at the time, ah, we didn't agree to anything. We need an actual facility up and running before we can approve something. And over the months, this is, it should be no surprise to anybody, but there were delays and delays and delays. Suddenly, it was not end of 2020. It was sometime mid-2021, and then it was mid-2021, as we learned in the last couple of days. It's actually not going to be completed. Even the structure won't be done until September, and it won't be producing vaccines until end of 2021 at the absolute earliest. Yeah. So this project has been beset by delays. All the while, these other, this, this other facility literally right next door has been sitting mm-hmm. idle, unused. Other companies that have candidates have gotten money, but many of them have said it showed up so late that they actually had to push back some of their clinical trials. So it just it does seem like it's one of those cases where there's this sort of black box bureaucratic decision making happening and it's happening too slow. And when decisions are made, there doesn't seem to be any sort of accountability or transparency or explanation for it. Things are just done. And then that's how it is. And I think we're kind of reaping uh, the results of that now. Yeah, I mean, we're not allowed access to the vaccine contracts. You know, the Prime Minister was pretty much caught uh, off guard today when a reporter asked a very simple question of, uh, did you get any of these 
you know, conversations with the EU leaders in writing, and, and he just don't, he couldn't even answer the question. But as you point out in um, in the report back in December, I mean, Trudeau government had been talking to all sorts of vaccine producers, trying to you know get them to manufacture here, and there wasn't much interest. And and I think that speaks to the the lack of innovation, the lack of um, competition that Canada has when it comes to pharma. And and pharma companies are looking at us, going, yeah, it's not worth our time. And now we're paying such a dear price for that. Yeah, and listen, you know, the Prime Minister keeps saying, quite rightly, um, previous governments have consistently made the decision not to invest in our domestic biomanufacturing, especially our private biomanufacturing capacity. He's very right about that. You can point to a whole bunch of decisions made in the last several decades that have led to very promising and smart and effective and efficient companies not getting funding and going into business or moving to a different country. But the thing is, what he's criticizing his predecessors for doing, he's doing right now. He's literally made the decision not to go with some of these companies because he has some other, frankly, not entirely thought through scheme with the National Research Council. And just to be clear, you know, these other companies, they're not perfect. Their facilities are not, it's not as though these facilities are sterling and incredible and just, just ready and raring to go. They need some investment. In some cases, they need some more staff. But that's why the government of Canada partners with them. There's not a lot of money to be made in making vaccines. What you need is a government with a with a, a desire and a need for these vaccines to go with some of these companies who need the investment, who won't get it from other you know hedge funds or whatever. And it's a match made in heaven. This imperfect yeah. company partners with a government who doesn't have the capacity in their own arsenal, and the two of them get together, make the right upgrades, make the right hires, and and before you know it, you have vaccines. This is not a fairy tale. This is what the UK is doing. This is what other countries are doing. The US has done this with Operation Warp Speed. Why Canada thought that it was impossible for us to do is still beyond me. And every time we ask, the government goes, oh, no, no, confidentiality, corporate confidentiality. We couldn't possibly. Except it's the government of Canada who insists on the confidentiality clauses in these agreements and in these applications. So they're really just insisting on being anti-transparent, opaque, and, and, and really refusing to just even adhere to a, a minimum measure of, of accountability. Yeah, well, maybe they're counting on repeating the talking point over and over and hoping it uh, eventually catches on, but time will tell. Uh, thank you, and uh, appreciate your insight into this. You bet. Cheers. Justin Ling, who's a freelance journalist and who uh, wrote about this very issue back in December. So the, the, the warnings have been waving for a good long time, and yes, previous governments have also... Uh, failed, but um, this government had five years, and they were also the government talking about not only transparency, but the support for scientists. And even then, you look at Health Canada, no doctors, no scientists working there, and, and the one or two they had were also warning, look, there's something bad coming, and, and none of it was listened to. So many mistakes and so much blame to go around, but boy, oh boy, are we paying for it. Can the Biden administration help to free the Michaels. Uh, Justin Trudeau had a call with Kamala Harris, the vice president, who apparently in that call expressed strong solidarity with this country over the detainment of the two men. But uh, what does that mean? Is this new administration going to strike some kind of deal with the Huawei CEO in exchange for a release? And if so, what kind of message would that send moving forward that Canada will play into hostage diplomacy? I mean, their kidnapping is in direct connection with Wanju's detainment. And if she walks, and that means she would have to leave Canada, where would that then leave 
Huawei. Let us ask someone who probably knows. Charles Burton joining me, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, as well an uh, expert in China-Canada relations, who also served as a former counsel at the Canadian Embassy to China. Good to have you, Charles. Good to speak with you. Let's talk about that first um, uh, conversation with Kamala Harris, the vice president. Um, do you get the sense that there is something going on in the background? And if if they were to make some kind of deal, I would think that's very dangerous, not just for Canada, but the United States as far as his, you know, hostage diplomacy. Yes, I mean, I think if we show weakness, then the Chinese will simply uh, see it as a sign that they can pressure us more, both with the and you know diplomacy hostage diplomacy and other other uh, things and and also on trade so you know i think it would be a great mistake if the united states basically just bailed on it under pressure from canada and withdrew the extradition request and that sends out a bad signal all around i you know certainly trudeau probably wants uh, President Biden to do this. He raised it in his conversation with President Biden as well as Vice President uh, Harris. Um, you know, they've turned us down on the Keystone Pipeline. It looks like uh, we'll be frozen out of uh, U.S. government procurement. And so this might be something that, that the Americans feel that they have to make a concession to Canada about. But uh, I, I really think it would be a, a grave mistake. The, the best solution would be for Meng to go to the United States and get good lawyers and see if those charges stand up. And in fact, is that something that they could negotiate? Could the Trudeau government say, instead of making a deal agreeing to like a swap, um, you know, can you get her off our hands? And at least that shows that we are united and that we're going to continue following the rule of law. Would that arrangement be able to be made? Well, I mean, the main problem is on our side, just how unbelievably uh, drawn out this extradition yeah. process is. Because, yeah. you know, after all, we're not determining if she is guilty or we're simply determining whether the U.S. extradition request is inconsistent with the extradition treaty. Why it goes on for two years, uh, you know, is hard to fathom. You would have thought a judge could look over everything over a couple of days, make a determination, get her out to the state's uh, no longer Canada's problem. Well, you would think, um, you know, extradition hearings and uh, cases are generally long, but, you know, in cases this high profile with, uh, you know, given the circumstances, it's a bit odd that they haven't been able to expedite it, but clearly they don't maybe feel the uh, urgency um, or maybe they just don't see that as an option. Well, I, I have discussed this with people in government and they say that they simply cannot um, interfere in the scheduling of judicial matters. Although I would have thought that you know the Minister of Justice could determine that this is a matter of national importance and therefore bump Ms. Mung ahead of other cases and encourage her lawyers to cease delaying and simply appear before a judge, make the best case they can. We have a very sound basis for her lawyers to suggest that you know, she shouldn't go because of violation of due process over some some errors made in, in how they handled her cell phones at the airport or, um, you know, that this is simply politically motivated on the part of the Trump administration, particularly as the process to extradite her began under the Obama administration before Mr. Trump was president. So, you know, in general, I think it's just time to get her out to, to the states and let justice uh, run its course. Um, I think the Chinese government is probably very concerned that if Ms. Meng does go to the states, 
that she might provide information about the relationship between Huawei and Chinese military and security agencies that would severely um, crimp their plans to dominate global telecommunications through getting the contracts for 5G all around the world. Yeah, and I mean, uh, had the uh, Trudeau government not toiled uh, and gotten involved in the SNC-Loveland uh, you know, issue, you know, they would have had a convincing case that they don't play with the rule of law, but they did blur those lines and China has used it to its advantage. But to your point on Huawei, if uh, she does get extradited or if a deal is arranged to drop this thing, what happens with Huawei? I mean, the government was supposed to make a decision on this a long, long time ago, as you know, we're the last of the Five Eye partners to make a decision on Huawei. But, you know, if she goes, Huawei is still here in Canada. Uh, but are they? Do you get the sense that the Trudeau government is waiting for a decision in this case before they decide on Huawei? I wonder about that. Really, when you look at government, you know they're they're essentially appeasing China on all sorts of issues. Hong Kong, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, China agents harassment of Canadians, influence operations, cyber espionage. You know we're not doing anything about these things, and we're certainly way behind. As you say, our partners in the Five Eyes, particularly Australia, which has a much, much greater stake in the China trade than than Canada does. And my fear is that if the Liberals achieve a majority government in the next election, Mm. that they will make a decision in favor of Huawei because our government seems to, for whatever reason, want to establish favor with the Chinese regime. And that means making a lot of compromises on a lot of non-trade issues in exchange for doubtful promises that will get fewer non-tariff barriers to access the Chinese market than other countries. You know, it just, the whole thing, I, I think about it a lot, and I, for the life of me, I cannot figure out why our government has a China policy that we have. You know, look at, the, look at how we got flim-flammed over the, um, yeah. over the va- vaccine. You know, how mm-hmm. naive and, and, uh, and, uh, and stupid can we be? When we, when we, you know, when China was like playing a chess game, of course China would say, "Well, if you want the vaccine, let Meng go." You know that that wouldn't that doesn't take a lot of of brains to figure out that that would have been their next move, and that did it. And as a result, you know, a lot of Canadians are unnecessarily suffering premature death because we just don't have the vaccines in their arms. Well, you bring up a good point. How stupid can they be? I'm afraid. Uh... I'm, I'm afraid to see the answer to that question, frankly. <laughs> yeah, it remains to be seen. Charles, I appreciate your time on this, and uh, we'll talk again, I'm sure. Thank you. Great to speak with you. Take care. That is uh, Charles Burton on this, and we'll continue watching it. Uh, we'll see. Boy, oh boy, what a mess we've gotten ourselves into. All righty, that wraps up yet another busy Tuesday. Charlie Adler takes you forward on Global News Radio 640 Toronto and our sister station, Global News Radio CFPL. I thank you. I thank my team. And we will see what Wednesday's conversation brings us. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.